That brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. Now Solomon made an alliance by marriage with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he married Pharaoh's daughter. And he brought her to the city of David until he could finish building his residence in the temple of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, why did the narrator tell you that? He's gone back to Egypt. And he's married a, an Egyptian. Why would he be marrying an Egyptian? A treaty, an alliance. It says it right there. Are you allowed to go back to Egypt for any reason? No, that's a violation of the Deuteronomic regulation for the king. Are you allowed to marry foreign women? No, it's a violation of Deuteronomy king. The narrator is immediately starting off with the princess of Egypt. He's brought her into his palace. Now it also says immediately after that that he put her in the old city of David until a newer and bigger and better palace could be built for her. Now we don't know for sure, but there might be this subtle remark that Solomon was content to live in his dad's house until he married her, and she wants something bigger and nicer and better. So they have to move, live in the old place until something bigger is better. His house already is way bigger than everybody's house in the city put together practically. Not literally, but almost there. His palace is about the size of like one-fifth of the city. But she's not content because she came from Egypt. Which means, here's a little subtle thing. She may have an influence over him already. That's important because when we get to chapter 11, it says that Solomon's heart was turned by his wives. And this is the very beginning of that. This is the very beginning of that. It starts with just building me a bigger house, and it ends up in full-blown idolatry. The people were offering sacrifices at the high places, because in those days the temple had not yet been built to honor Yahweh. Was the narrator telling you there? Is the tabernacle still around? Yes. Remember, Joab just went to the tabernacle and threw himself on the altar. The Ark of the Covenant is Jerusalem. Remember, the tabernacle is in Gibeon, and the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. They're sacrificing where? Is that good? No, God strictly forbid that in Deuteronomy. But the narrator says, but they're sacrificing there because there hasn't been a temple built. Has God ever mentioned a temple yet? No. Is there anything in the law about you can only sacrifice in a temple? No, the law is sacrifice in the... And they do have one. This is the, narr the narrator did the same thing in Judges. When the narrator said, and they defeated these people and these people and these people, but they could not defeat these people because they had iron chariots. And he just kind of goes along. It's almost like sometimes when I'm, okay, sometimes when I'm reading the Bible to my students at school, I'll blatantly make up something heretical as I'm reading. I'll just like throw it right in there in the same tone of voice that I'm reading. And I'll just go, or just go way off somewhere like Solomon just massacred everybody. And I'm doing that intentionally because I'm waiting to see how many heads pop up. That's not in my Bible. And then how many people are just kind of like, oh, okay. I want to know who's paying attention. Now, I immediately correct myself and say, that's not what it says. And they know why. Eventually, by the end of the year, they're, they're paying a little bit more close attention because they do enough times. But that's kind of what the narrator's doing. Is they couldn't defeat them because they had iron chariots. Wink, wink, wink. Like, are you really paying attention to what I'm saying? Because I just gave you really bad information. We all know 
that iron chariots don't matter in God's eyes. He defeated the Egyptians. So the narrator is now saying they couldn't sacrifice in the tabernacle because they had no temple. Are you paying attention to what I just said? Because you should know that the narrator doesn't mean that because Deuteronomy says that you sacrifice in the tabernacle. What he's telling you is that this is what the people are thinking. We can't defeat them. They have iron chariots. Well, I can't sacrifice to God because we have a, only a tent. And sacrifices are done in temples. But wait a minute. They're at an altar on top of a hill. That's not a temple either. And the narrator is helping you understand this is just dumb logic. And it's disobedient logic. But in their minds, it sounds very logical. Because in their own minds, they became fools, thinking they were wise. And the narrator wants to, he's, now he's, beginning, he's showing you, hey, if you didn't pick up on everything bad that Solomon did in the previous chapter, I'm kind of making it a little bit more obvious. I'm still not telling you, because remember, this is a 400-level class. I'm not blatantly coming out and saying, now, boys and girls, this is wrong. But I am making it a little bit more obvious. This, things are not going well. Things are not going well. Solomon demonstrated his loyalty to Yahweh by following the practice of his father David, except he made sacrifices and burnt incenses on the high places. So God says he's been pretty good obeying God overall. Now remember, God never expects perfection. Because you'd be like, wait a minute, what about this and this and this and this? What he means by this is when God usually says that he was obedient to me, that doesn't mean he was perfectly obedient. God could never say that about any of us. Because we could say, well, yeah, but he kind of lied here, and sometimes he's a little aggressive and harsh with his wife. and Yeah, and the, you, we can find all those things. But what it means is that, remember, obedience is also repentance. And the idea is that, am I devoted to God? Am I trying to be obedient to God? And when I'm not obedient, am I trying to make things right? It's the idea of idolatry or devotion to God. And David screwed up a lot when it says he was, David was righteous in God's eyes, except for the sin with Bathsheba. He's not saying, oh, I don't consider the extortion wrong. I don't consider the taking the head of Goliath's head or off and carrying as a trophy wrong. I don't consider the marrying multiple wives wrong. He says, overall, David was trying to be obedient to God. So this is what he says. However, Solomon was sacrificing in the high places like everybody else. But then it says in verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. What's in Gibeon? The tabernacle. Now notice he says this, Solomon offered up a thousand burnt sacrifices on the altar there. Are a thousand sacrifices required by a human and one sacrifice by God? No. Why is he making a thousand sacrifices at Gibeon? There's a couple possible reasons. Okay, he might be trying to make up for everything else. But at the same time, why not just stop doing that? Or it could possibly be that he's extremely wealthy. Like if Bill Gates came to your church and threw $1,000 in the offering plate, most people would be like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. But really, is that a sacrifice for Bill Gates? No, that's like throwing a quarter in there. I mean, he probably makes $1,000 in five minutes of interest, okay, that he's accruing. Sacrifice without sacrifice is not sacrifice. The narrator seems to be shifting gears at Gibeon. One can say, yeah, maybe he's trying to make up for his sins, 
but everything seems to be pretty negative. But when we get to Gibeon, things start becoming more positive. He's in the right place now. He's making sacrifices. And then he's going to make a request of Yahweh. And is Yahweh going to be pleased with that request? Yes. Gibeon seems to be where the gears are shifting to a more positive. Now, it doesn't ignore all the negative. It's just that it's showing you that Psalm is not 100% bad either. And what the narrator is showing you is that Solomon is in the gray area. No human, well, I'm not going to say no human. Most humans are not completely evil or completely good. We're usually mixed bags. And we've seen that with the David story. And the narrator is doing the same thing with Solomon. He's going back and forth between negative things about him and positive things. Negative and positive. And for us, sometimes we're just like, my goodness, this gets so confusing. I have to pay attention the entire time and figure out which one is right or wrong. Yes, because that's how everybody in your life is. There's no neon sign that's flickering over your friend's head. And when they're saying things, it says, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And when they're saying other things, good, good, good. You have to figure it out. You have to know the word of God. You have to be in prayer. And you have to figure out, discern what, is, what they're doing is right and wrong. Sometimes it's more obvious than others, but with most of our friends, it's just gray. And the narrator's doing the same thing. He's going back and forth and back and forth. And not in a consistent pattern because he says, are you discerning? Are you discerning? And so the gears seem to be shifting to the positive. And so the sacrifices are good because he realizes just sacrificing one animal is not really true worship for a multimillionaire. It needs to cost him something. At this point, one night in Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream or a vision. And God said, tell me what I should give you. God has never, ever done this in the Bible. I can't say he's never done in the history of mankind, because not every instance of God talking to people is recorded. But it's never once in the Bible has God say, whatever you want, I will give you. So one, be careful of interpreting this as a genie in the bottle. Because whenever God does stuff like this, it's usually a test of character. Abraham, give me your one and only son. He has no intention of really allowing Isaac to die, but it's a test. Moses, I'm going to kill everybody. What do you think about it? But at the same time, too, this is one time that God does that, so you can't build a theology around that saying that God is a genie in the bottle. God is most likely testing him. He is pleased enough with Solomon to give this test, but he's also testing him. But remember, God knows the future. And he knows what Solomon's going to pick. So Solomon says this. Solomon replied, verse 6, You demonstrated great loyalty to your servant, my father David, as he served you faithfully, properly, and sincerely. You have maintained this great loyalty to this day by allowing his son to sit on his throne. So he's acknowledging Yahweh's goodness. Now, O Yahweh, my God, you have made me servant, your servant king in my father's David's palace place. Even though I am only a young man and an inexperienced, your servant stands among your chosen people, and they are a great nation that is too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning mind so he can make judicial decisions for your people and distinguish right from wrong. Otherwise, no one is able to make judicial decisions for this great nation of yours. And Yahweh was pleased. 
he says, I want wisdom. I want the ability to discern. Is this a good desire? Yes, very much so. But notice something that he says that I am just a young boy. A lot of your translations say young boy. That is not the best way to understand it. Because here's the thing. When Solomon becomes king, according to 1 Kings chapter 11, later we're going to be told, Solomon already has a son when he becomes king. Which means he has to be at least probably 18 years old. We know that when he becomes king, when he, he rules for 40 years, and his son is 41 years old when he dies. Solomon is more likely a young man, in his late 20s and his 30s easily. That is not a little boy. In fact, when we look at the Hebrew word, the use of the word boy here, it's actually used multiple times throughout the Bible, and it can refer to anybody. It refers to any from, from a little child to a young man to a man who's just newly married and just beginning life. And we're going to see it used later points. The point is not that he is a little boy who's taken the throne like King Tutankhamun. The point is that he says, this kingdom is huge. And there is so many things involved in running a kingdom every day. And I am inexperienced. I was not a young man when I started teaching at school. But I did feel very young and inexperienced when I started teaching for the first time. And that's what he's feeling like. And there were many times that even in my 30s, I felt like I was still just a kid with like little, little experience. And how am I going to manage this? Especially when I started having kids. Like, oh my gosh, I still feel like I'm in high school. And now I've got kids. Okay? But I was like in my 30s. That's more what's being communicated. Not that he's a little boy, but he's just saying... I'm in my late 20s and my 30s, and oh my goodness, this is a giant kingdom. It is the, right now, it is the greatest kingdom in this part of the world. David has turned, between God and David, they've turned into one of the greatest kingdoms ever. And he's got to manage this. I would feel like a little boy if I became president at the age of 50 years old. Like, can you imagine trying to run everything in this country and making all those decisions? That's what he's communicating here. But notice the humility here. Maybe he's come to this point where he's realized, oh my goodness, I've already botched this thing up because I've executed a bunch of people. And I've begun to realize that this isn't as easy as I thought. I just thought if I kill this person, this person, this, all my problems would go away. But I'm still feeling very overwhelmed. Now, I don't know exactly what he's thinking, but there's a possibility there. But either way, he's expressing for the first time his dependency upon Yahweh. This is the first time we see that. And he's basically finally admitting, I am inexperienced, I am overwhelmed, I don't know what to do, I am your vice regent Yahweh, please help me, give me wisdom and discernment. Maybe the last couple months or years or whatever it's been has taught him I did not start things off well, and I'm going downhill quickly. And that's the character of Solomon so far. He screwed up a lot. There's a lot of things he's done wrong. But in this moment, he's humbling himself before Yahweh. And that is where the fear of Yahweh and the wisdom begins. That's where it all begins. 
and he's doing it. As Proverbs says, the beginning of the wisdom is fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He is presenting himself in the fear of Yahweh, and God is going to give him that. And James says, if you ask and seek out wisdom, Yahweh is faithful to give it to you. Yahweh is pleased with Solomon. They made his request. And God said to him, because you ask for the ability to make wise judicial decisions and not for long life or riches or vengeance on your enemies, everything else you could have asked for, I will grant your request and give you a wise and discerning mind superior to that of anyone who's ever preceded you or will succeed you. Now, I don't know how far you can carry that comment, but there's almost an implication that he is the wisest man who has ever lived and ever will live. Now, one could interpret that as limited to only Israel, or one could see that as the entire world. Either way, that's super wisdom. That's incredible wisdom. Furthermore, I am giving you what you did not request, riches and honors, so that you will be the greatest king of your generation. And if you follow my instructions... By obeying my rules and regulations, just as your father did, then I will grant you long life. Solomon then woke up and realized it was a vision. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of Yahweh's covenant, and offered up burnt sacrifices, presented peace offerings, and held a feast for all of his servants. This is amazing. God is so pleased with Solomon, he gives him everything else he could have asked for. The wealth, the power, the security, but notice he didn't just say, this is all yours, the price is right. He says, and if you diligently obey me and keep my commands, then I will give you a long life. I will give you shalom, life to the fullest. It is contingent upon obedience. And the implication is you've humbled your heart now, and you're obedient now in this case. And so I will make you into a great kingdom. But if that changes, I will reduce your kingdom as well. And that's very important to understand. We often just think, I won the lottery. But there's always the, but if you obey me and you're diligent to keep my commands, you will have this. Remember, too, that that statement must also be put in the greater context of the entire mission of God for Israel. Remember in Deuteronomy, Moses came to Israel and says, don't think God is giving you the land and making you into a great nation because you're that awesome and great. In fact, you were pretty insignificant and losers when God first found you, and he made you awesome. And on top of that, you've disobeyed here and here and here and here and here. Actually, you're not really that great. God is going to make you into a great nation and give you a great land so that all the world will know who truly Yahweh is and that his name may be praised and the whole world will come to Israel and be blessed through you. And that's the same thing they told Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. So this comment must be understood in both of those contexts. First, God makes you great in order to make himself great so that more people will come to him and find life. And second, its greatness is always in the context of obedience. Greatness is always in the context of obedience. And when you forget that, then you will not be great. 
And you might be great, but it's a man-made greatness that can be crushed very quickly and often is. And if you are great for a long time, it's just because the downfall is going to be that much greater because it lasted that long before it got there. We know that all kings fall. And so this is the context. Um, so the ark is in Jerusalem and the tabernacle is in Gibeon. So what is causing the ark? Another tent. We're just told that the ark is in a tent in Jerusalem. David left the tabernacle in Gibeon and then took the ark out of it and moved it to Jerusalem and placed it in a a tent. And right there you're like, that's not right. So right now their worship is all fragmented. They got a tabernacle in Gibeon, the ark of the covenant in Jerusalem. They've got high places that they're sacrificing on and they're just kind of worshiping God however they want. And you're like, okay, but then why would God bless him? Why would God come to him if he's like all over the place and where he's worshiping? Because that's who God is. The same thing when we get wrapped up in our materialism and we bring materialism into the church and we bring our worship in and sometimes we sing songs that are theologically incorrect. Just because your passion doesn't mean it's okay. But at the same time, In your ignorance, in your lack of vocabulary, God can still take your heart for what it is, even though he's thinking, oh my gosh, read the Bible. God overlooks a lot of our cultural sins, and I don't mean he overlooks it in that there's no consequences, doesn't affect our relationship, but he gets that we're human. And he still, in his grace and love, blesses us. And you know this, as a parent or a teacher or anything, your kids don't deserve anything from you. Every, like, oh my gosh, how many times have I told you? And I, how can you do this? And like, and yet at the same time, like our kids were miserable and making our life just, they were disobedient and grumpy and miserable and all that kind of stuff. And we still chose to take them to the North Market and this kind of stuff. And then they were totally ungrateful afterwards. But yet then we still love them and we still do things for them because we're hoping that maybe they'll be overwhelmed by grace and that kind of, and there's still consequences but at the same time, we're not going to, like, punish them for just being moody. And so you kind of overlook some of that stuff because you love them and you still want to bless them. And, and there's certain things that are so enrooted in our psyche because of our culture that God has to overlook it to a certain extent or nothing good would ever be given to us. We have no idea why God is overlooking certain things and dealing with other things. We just got to trust him that he's dealing it in the right order that we psychologically needed to be dealt with in order to be healthy. And so, yes, it's really confusing. It's really wrong, but that doesn't seem to be what the narrator is zeroing on right now, except for the high places. I think he's probably right. Right now, the fact that the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant is fragmented is nothing compared to we got high places right now. And that needs to be dealt with first. 